If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Medieval Britain was home to many animals that have since died out. Our content director, David Musgrove, spoke to Dr Lee Ray of the Open University to find out more about their research on these extinct beasts. Today we are talking about uh, medieval animals. Dr Lee Ray is Associate Lecturer in History of the Open University. They completed their PhD on the forgotten beasts of medieval England, focusing on the extinction of lynxes, beavers, whales and cranes. So we're going to talk a little bit about the animals that went missing from Britain during the Middle Ages and uh, and hopefully have a little bit of a chat about uh, the comeback or, or the potential comeback of some of them anyway. Um, so Lee, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Oh, thank you very much. I am very well, thank you. Excellent. So uh, let, let's dive in. What are the, the sources, uh, documentary, archaeological, place name uh, that, that we can use to locate animals within the medieval period? So that's a fun question because it's sort of changed over time. Um, I focus on the historical and some, sometimes the literary sources. So that's the, the sort of written sources on animals. Um, but other people focus on the archaeological evidence. So that's evidence for, of sort of when people find animal remains in the ground. Um, some people focus on genetic evidence now. So that's when they find different populations and see how closely related they are and potentially how they've moved over time and sort of when when animals uh when animals colonized uh britain um other types of evidence like place name evidence and artistic evidence and folkloric evidence is not actually used as much as it was say uh 10 or 50 or 100 years ago um partially because it's it's sometimes not as reliable as it as we used to think it was so artistic evidence for example what we've realized is that medieval scribes when they're drawing animals they tend to create animals um, which look exactly like the previous pictures of them so it's a very derivative art form and although sometimes it can be really useful um, especially in sort of early modern naturalists illustrations of animals uh, 
sometimes those those illustrations are very derivative. Um, it's an interesting point about the artistic side of things, actually, isn't it? Because um, you often see these uh, sort of uh, drawings or um, uh, illustrations of, of of lions, for instance, which look nothing like uh, a, what a lion actually looks like. So you kind of um, people say, well, that, that clearly whoever made that drawing has never seen an actual lion. Yes, isn't it amazing? And I think sometimes we get so caught up in whether animals look naturalistic that we forget that um, these figurative lions, which are drawn in a very uh, a, a very prescribed style, they're very highly artistic. And so people must have been thinking about lions a lot and drawing lions a lot for that tradition to develop, even if they weren't seeing lions a lot. So it shows that uh, there might have been a divorce um, between what people were thinking about and what was around them in terms of wildlife in the natural world. Sure. So um, what sort of references or, or piece of evidence do you find particularly useful in your research when you're trying to uh, understand uh, these extinct animals? Well, it's difficult because in the medieval period, lots of the evidence is very unreliable. We, we sometimes end up going to the early modern period where all of a sudden there's this genre of natural history texts created by the, the naturalists of the time period. Um, but in terms of the medieval period, sometimes I look at travel sort of diaries and accounts. So Gerald of Wales, for example, um, I, I particularly like his um, description of Wales and his travel through Wales and travel through Ireland. If we can combine those medieval and early modern um, records and say, look, it was still in, it was still present in the early modern period, this animal, it must have been present in the medieval period, then maybe we can start to dig deeper into the medieval period evidence and 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 find those animals, even if the the evidence isn't as reliable. So I guess, but you're having to sort of trawl across quite a wide range of sources then, I suppose, aren't you? It must be um, quite an eclectic search you have to make to, to try and find evidence for, for these animals. Yes, it's very difficult as across multiple languages and, and multiple centuries. And the chronology is very difficult to, to, to keep track of. Um, but I suppose that's, that's, that's medieval, medievalism and, and early modernism. That's what we do. <laughs> And is it, I mean, we talked a little bit there about some of the challenges of using uh, artistic um, evidence. Is it is it always clear in the documentary sources what specific species of animal is being referenced? Is it can you can you completely be clear if they're talking about a, a certain sort of uh, uh, scientific um, genus, as we might call them today? No, the the names used for animals are so difficult because they change over time. And of course, we've got multiple different languages to look at. And some of the names which were in use seem to have been used for multiple species, sometimes at different times, but sometimes at the same time. So a good good example is, I suppose, I did a study of um, pre-industrial records of frogs in, in Britain. Um, and what I found was that there was a specific a specific kind of frog called the green frog. And nowadays we think of the green frog as being a sort of water frog. So the edible frog and the pool frog, which has recently been reintroduced in, in Norfolk. Um, but in the past, green frog, according to all of the descriptions which I found from the late medieval and, and early modern period, seems to have been a tree frog. And I suppose for this one, I should admit that um, we do have some artistic evidence so in Conrad Jesner's Historia Animalium, there's a, a lovely picture um, which was copied in 
Topsell's English translation of the book in the um, late, later on. Um, and this is a picture of a frog literally sitting on a leaf. Um, it's, it's a typical tree frog. Um, so we have this green frog, which is which changes meanings at some point, and so we have to work out which which kind of frog is is being described um, in different periods, and of course whether the description matters, whether the description is actually of a, a British wild species, or whether it's more likely to be of uh, just just a copied uh, text from um, another country or another place. Okay, so there's, there's there's quite a few challenges in uh, in carrying out this sort of research. Um, so look, we we know during the during the uh, the, the, the medieval period, uh, one of the sort of the themes, the trends uh, that was going on was was an attempt for by by people to to sort of control their environment a bit more to to expand agriculture, perhaps um, though maybe the Black Death uh, impacted on that somewhere. But you know, trying to drain land and 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 basically make it uh, more amenable to agricultural practice. Um, so, did that mean and and do you see uh, in your in your research uh, that there is a conflict? between humans and wild animals with, with that sort of framework in mind? Yes, all the time. Um, so we, we have a lot of um, records of, of people like shepherds being concerned for their flocks with, with, with wild animals um, taking, taking sheep. Um, so there's, there, there is concern about... Uh, so that there is some evidence of human-animal conflict there. But it's also interesting that it's different people have different conflicts with different species. So the crane in in Britain before it went extinct seems to have been particularly fond of um, going into fields, especially in winter during the, the migration season, um, and eating eating uh, the crops there um, when, when people had any any crops through the through the winter. But at the same time, the elites of society, the people who loved hunting and the people who loved falconry, really valued the crane because it was the biggest sort of game bird which they could uh, which they could catch. And so we we get to this stage where um, people are passing laws. The, the elites of society are passing laws to try and protect species like the crane and also the bustard, which was also going extinct in the time period. Um, for ordinary people, these these animals were considered just to be pests. So we have different different types of pers- people um, having different relationships with animals, which I think is fun. Um, would there have been um, still fairly large tracts of land, large areas where uh, people were not maybe hugely active in agriculture, where wild animals could exist very much under the radar still? Some, some wild animals do exist under the radar, but I think not necessarily because they were never seen, but because no one really cared about them. <laughs> so I'm a big, big lover of amphibians and reptiles. And one of my favorites is the Natterjack toad. Um, and I have never found a Natterjack toad reference in any medieval or early modern text. Not through lack of trying, I assure you, because I've tried, tried very hard to find that toad. Um, but it's just no one pays attention to it. But in terms of the land use, um, I think we have to consider that before urbanization, before the Industrial Revolution, and before some of the effects like the the, the, the Scottish clearances, um, there were a lot of people all sort of all over the countryside, um, just working day in day out outside. There's there's very little land which wasn't being exploited in some way and even being managed in some way. 
Um, so that even areas which seem like they would be wildernesses to us today, like the wetlands before they were drained, um, maybe the fens of, of places like Norfolk and Cambridge, um, those areas were still being exploited by uh, ordinary people who were going out to, to catch fish and to catch birds there. Um, and so really, I think if there were all, all of the all of the animals were being seen, but whether they were being recorded, and whether the even even the people seeing these animals and interested in them were able to create records of them, whether they were literate and whether they were interested enough, that's a different matter. But notwithstanding that, there, there must have been some areas where there was a, a, a basically just a higher human population, and some areas where there was lower human population uh, and therefore lower human activity. So, w- would extinction of animals have happened at different times in different bits of Britain? Yes, that's definitely true. Um, so, it still happens today, of course, that we have the, for example, the wildcat, the Scottish wildcat, is only found in the Highlands of Scotland. But if we go back 150 years, it was all over Britain. And it just seems to have lingered on for longer in Scotland, perhaps because of the lower population density or the the uh, the increased amount of of highland and 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 inaccessible landscape. And that does happen in the medieval period as well. Um, so one of the best pieces, one one of the best case studies for this, I suppose, is the beaver, which seems to have gone extinct in um, especially the south of England much earlier than in Scotland. There are records in Scotland from the 16th century, but the last really reliable record from um, from from lowland Britain, I suppose, is from um, Wales in the 12th century. And so there's this, this long period where perhaps it was only found in certain parts of the country. So yes, I suppose you could definitely say that different different species last for longer in different parts of the country. We'll we'll come back to the beaver again in a minute, but just one more one more general question. Um, sort of t- trying to understand. You talked a little bit earlier about the sort of the legal position of uh, of cranes and bustards and how there was a, a sort of a, a a bit of a challenge between different uh, groups in society. Generally speaking, are you able to say anything about what the legal position of wild animals was in medieval Britain? I know medieval Britain is a, a covers various policies, various different uh, different and 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 it's fairly long period but is there there a sort of general sense of of the legal position yeah it it is complicated because there are different legal systems in place you know wales and scotland and england all have their own systems and if we go back further there were additional things uh, additional areas of of legislature um but what we could say in general i suppose is that animals tend to be connected to the land so if you were a landowner then you were usually entitled to exploit the animals on your land um, but there were exceptions to that. So certain types of species um, were considered to be protected and you, and you needed a special license to hunt those. Um, so, for example, in certain periods of English law, um, it was not only illegal to hunt hares, it was illegal to own greyhounds unless you were wealthy or unless you had a, a, a license to do so. Um, so, yes, Generally, it's about land ownership. But of course, common people, um, not all of the land in Britain was owned. Some of it was uh, common land and common people, ordinary people, would be able to hunt and and gather um, food, including wildlife, um, in, in that land. And some of the land in Britain was, was royal land. Uh, we're thinking of the forests and the parks and, the, and some of the warrens, um, which were 
exclusively for the use of the royal court and those who they deemed, um, uh, those who they gave licenses to. Um, and so those areas were strictly off limits. Um, and the, I suppose the most draconian penalties for, for poaching were applied to those areas. Brilliant. Okay. So we've kind of set up the scene there, a general understanding of what's going on. Let's let's um, pick a few examples of some animals and try and uh, understand what happened to them. So the first one I want to talk about is the lynx. Now, the lynx is an interesting animal, and, and maybe some of our listeners might not um, be too familiar what a lynx actually is. You mentioned the Scottish wildcat earlier. Um, it's not that, is it? So what, what is a lynx exactly? A lynx is a cat. It's about the size of a Labrador dog. Um, and it is a solitary hunter. It likes to live in woodlands um, and likes to go uh, around in, in sort of des- deserted areas. Uh, it's very shy and it tends to run away from humans. Um, the lynx was around in early medieval Britain because we have some evidence, um, some archaeological evidence of remains from the north of England. And there are a few records of the lynx in med- in the medieval period, or there appear to be, um, which describe uh, conflict with with shepherds and um, sometimes interest in its fur. Um, lynx furs were were highly regulated. They were seen as sort of one of the species. Um, one of lynx fur was one of the kinds of fur which was sort of constrained to the richest people in society. So only elites were allowed to wear it. So you mentioned the lynx was uh, was was a threat um, to shepherds and to, and to the sheep. Was it in any way a threat to people? Did, did the lynx attack people? And was that something that medieval people worried about? Not in the reliable documents. So I suppose the fun thing is with the lynx, um, as it goes extinct, it doesn't quite fade straight away. There are records, I suppose, of big cats, um, which might or might not be lynx or might or might not be lynx-shaped, but were probably larger-than-life monstrous cats. And sometimes in in those sort of literary accounts, we get ideas of big cats hunting people. Um, But in terms of the actual lynx and in terms of the records which come from from areas which actually probably had lynxes, no, there's no evidence of any uh, lynx attacks on on humans uh, by real lynxes anyway. That's, that's quite interesting what you just said there. The sort of the, the sort of the slightly monstrous nature of, of the way they're depicted is that kind of the origin of the of the modern big cat sighting type uh, theme that we have still in some areas. Sometimes I wonder about this. So my favourite is Calf Palig, um, who was a, a, a monstrous cat who took over Anglesey and caused the deaths of many, many people, um, and even some of some of Arthur's um, fellow warriors, King Arthur. Um, but I don't know about about the big cat sightings because they are they're slightly different to these this monstrous idea of the of the lynx, which appears as as a monster and as a, a dangerous predator. Um, because these the the sort of big cat sightings we have nowadays are sort of these mysterious animals which can vanish and are never seen by camera traps. Um, I'm it, there's more of a folklore uh, sort of resonance actually for for monstrous dogs like the Hound of the Baskervilles. Um, the medieval people were very interested in their hellhounds, and usually sort of horrible villains in stories quite often get hunted down by packs of hellhounds across across moors and things like that. That's a, that's a clear a clear one from medieval and early modern periods. 
So were there any other, do, do we have any evidence for any other large feline species in Britain uh, in the medieval period, aside from lynx and, and I guess the, the wild cat that you mentioned earlier, which is still still, still with us? So we've got the wild cat, which is still just about holding on, um, and we've got the lynx, which um, went extinct a while ago, although not so long as people think. Um, we've also got the house cat, which was... Um, which was looking after looking after the rodent situation around people's um, settle uh, around around human settlements um, at least since the Iron Age, um, and as well as that, it seems that in the Roman period um, and in the later medieval period, people seemed to uh, seem to like collecting animals. So in the Roman period, probably mostly for fights in in arenas, um, fighting gladiators. Um, but in the later medieval period for menageries. So we have, um, we, we do actually have a record of a lynx in the Tower of London at one point in the menagerie there. Um, and there's a wonderful drawing of it by John Caius. <laughs> um, so you mentioned there that the lynx went uh, extinct maybe later than people think. So what's, what's, your, what's your latest thinking on when the lynx disappeared from Britain? Oh, you've asked me at just the right time, David, because just a month ago we had, um, well, an, I had a new paper which was um, released in uh, Mammal Communications. And my paper um, describes a possible record to the links from 1760. It's just such an awfully late record, um, but it describes uh, the, the record I found is in Richard Pocock's um, Travels, and he describes a population of lynxes uh, near Orkincairn in Dumfries and Galloway. Um, and he describes this, this population as being a, a, a type of wildcat which was three times larger than the ordinary wildcat and would take sheep and grouse. Um, and um, any time they, they tried to do pest control, they had to to, to pay the fox hunter lots of extra money to 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 take on to take on these species, um, so there's evidence for a possible relict or, or a, a very late population in Britain as late as the 18th century, um, and that's far later I think than it would have survived in in England or in in other parts of Britain, um, but it just seems like there might have been a just a, a population lingering on for that late, which is is mind blowing in some ways, isn't it? Uh, in medieval Britain, would when when would you would one have expected to have seen lynxes roaming around fairly regularly and fairly commonly, or or is that um, an incorrect view? Yeah, it's difficult because lynxes, um, the the words which we have for lynx um, are, are 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 difficult to use. So, for example, in the old English period, there was a word for lynx, which was locks, which was uh, which was used especially in glossaries, um, and in the, that's an old type of dictionary. Um, and it seems to have been a rare word, which was very rarely used. Um, and the the term lynx at the same time, which was originally a Latin term, um, that again seems to be rarely used, um, so that. In some in some of the old dictionaries, the closest we get to a lynx is um, between a wolf and a cat, uh, which is, I think, a, a fun definition. Um, so it seems that there might be some references to lynxes hidden behind sort of references to other species. So this this 18th century record um, uses uh, the term wild cat, 
and other records which I've seen um, use other terms. So in Welsh, there's some, in, in sort of Middle Welsh and Old Welsh, there's a very interesting term, which isn't in the dictionary. There's um, there's two references to llewyn. Um, llew is the Welsh word for a lion. So llewyn might be a diminutive, a little lion, or it might be, it looks a little bit like a plural. So llewod, but llewyn. Um, and there's also the term llewon. So it seems like there might be sort of rare words for li- for, for sort of links-like species or links-like animals um, around medieval Britain. Um, but that's, that's, that's going into the nuts and bolts of it. Uh, maybe that doesn't help very much. I mean, what, what, what caused uh, the decline in numbers of the links? Why did it eventually become extinct? Was it being hunted or was it just habitat loss or a combination of the two? Uh, so in Europe as a whole, we can see that the lynx was being hunted. Um, it was mostly direct persecution. So there was a lot of hunting for furs um, and maybe hunting for pest control because it was taking out a lot of sheep. But at the same time, um, Europe was rapidly being deforested through the medieval period. And lynxes today tend to only live in areas which have a, a quite a high woodland coverage. Sometimes they Sometimes people suggest that, you know, 40% woodland coverage is, is what lynx would need in an area um, to survive. Uh, and certainly the places where it survived the longest were the sort of the high mountains with lots of woods along the, along the slopes where people rarely went and where there was lots of woodland coverage for them to stalk their, their prey. So probably the habitat loss would also have been really important for the extinction of the lynx um, on a Europe-wide basis. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And that's why the beaver would throw its testicles at the incoming horses in order that um, they would stop chasing it and just say, oh, we've got what we came for, off we go. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
Need to hire? You need indeed. Right, let's move on from cats to whales. Uh, now, whales are interesting. Um, uh, obviously, maritime animal. What sort of whales are we talking about? What, which whales have you identified in your research? Well, this is this is a fun question because the whales which we might really want to know the most about, I suppose the most exciting whales would be, you know, the really big ones. So when experts talk about whales, sometimes they're just talking about dolphins and porpoises and other cetaceans. Um, but I suppose the most exciting whales are the, are the really big ones. You know, we think about blue whales and sperm whales and fin whales. In the medieval period, perhaps the, the most common kind of whale would have been the right whale, um, which was uh, very common, and also the grey whale, which would have been seen um, because it was especially liked to, to live along the coastline. It didn't like the open waters so much. Um, so I suppose that's the, the species that we'd be most interested in looking at. Um, but when we look for, when, when we look up, I suppose, the term whale and try and find references to whales um, in medieval sources, uh, we come to a bit of a shock because medieval people didn't really distinguish whales in the same way that we do. So one of the most common uh, references to whale in the medieval period are people who talk about whale's bones or whale's teeth. And that actually refers to the ivory of walruses, so the, the tusks of walruses, which apparently were considered to be a kind of whale in the, in the medieval imagination. And so we, it's, it's a, a difficult job to uh, take what we want to find as, as the large species of whales and find it in this medieval corpus, which uh, considered whale very broadly as sort of any large species of marine animal. Okay, so again, a bit difficult to work out. But so, I, but are you thinking that there were large whales that that were swimming around the coast of Britain that are not evident today? Yes. So the right whale, which we know was around in Britain, um, or was around the shore, was was found around the in 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 sort of British waters in the medieval period, um, was definitely swimming around, and it's now. Uh, it's extinct in the East Atlantic and it's critically endangered in the West Atlantic. Um, and, and the grey whale, again, lost lost from the East Atlantic. Um, so, yeah, there were species which, which were lost from today. And if we can trust the medieval texts, which I'm not sure we can, <laughs> but whales seem to have been very, very common if, if we can trust them. Um, there seem to have been lots and lots of, uh, of, of, of large large marine animals um and perhaps in the era before the the mass whale huntings um there would have been just an unprecedented amount of wildlife out there that is fascinating isn't it um so were whales deemed to be dangerous beasts in in the in the medieval early medieval sources yeah this is a fun one because i i sort of dug into the medieval sources on whales and what I found was in the early medieval sources, the most common depiction of a whale is as a sort of monster, as a demon. Um, so St. Columba um, at one time sort of has some problems with whales in the, in the Western Isles where he was living, Western Isles of Scotland. And he warns people that if they go out on the ship today, they might meet a whale. 
Um, and eventually someone manages to banish this whale um, just by blessing it in God's name. And so we get a very a real sense that this is a this is a demonic whale or a, a creature of the devil. Um, and it's similar in the bestiary accounts of whales that they're sort of these evil creatures. But when we get into the late medieval period, there's a sudden kind of shift and whales are depicted as not just monsters which are uh, which need to be banished by holy men, uh, not just as sort of leviathans, but also as potentially exploitable species, which might be useful for uh, for, for people um, and which which can be used by people um, for food or for um, potentially fuel or for creating art um, in terms of in terms of the whale bones. In terms of exploitation of, of whales, um, they were hunted in uh, in the Middle Ages, weren't they? And um, I'm thinking of um, Aelfrich in his colloquies in the, when was that, 11th, 10th, 10th 11th centuries, he talks about uh, whale hunting, doesn't he? So I've always found that fascinating and terrifying. How, how would medieval people have gone about hunting whales? It doesn't feel like they've got the right sort of technology to be able to do something like that. Yes, yeah, it's fun, isn't it? Um, and especially in Alfred's colloquy, he uh, distinguishes two types of hunting of whale. He says that some some whales are caught, um, by which I assume he means in nets like fish, but then other types of whales are hunted. Um, he uses um, the the verb as if you would go hunting sort of a deer on land. Um, so yeah, it. it it makes me think maybe some some whales would have been just just caught in nets. Maybe the small smaller sort of dolphins and and porpoises and sharks, and then other ones might have been driven um, through maybe drive hunting. Um, so sort of driven into the to the shallows and then stabbed or um, or shot full of arrows. Um, but I think we need a we need an archaeologist specialist on technology to to tell us more about that. But okay, let's move on from whales um to another animal um to the beaver now before we start chatting about beaver you've mentioned them already i should i should say that i've kind of got a, a vested interest in beavers because uh when i was doing my phd i i had a, a little bit of a side hustle working with a, a famous archaeologist called professor Bryony cole looking at uh, beaver habitats and uh, and trying to under, understand whether beavers could have um uh, been uh, sort of influential in the way that we understand prehistoric um archaeological sites because of the, of the way they gnaw bits of wood so i'm fascinated by beavers and, and really enjoy hearing about them um but come on tell, tell us about beavers because beavers are very interesting right now because there is a, a sort of a move to to reintroduce them across britain um uh so so they're they're of the moment aren't they yes isn't it amazing we, we're finally at the stage where there's this just this widespread acceptance that we should have more beavers um and yes yeah, something that we've we've been saying for years haven't we <laughs> um so Beavers in the medieval period were um, were a bit like uh, what we've talked about with cranes. Um, their fur was really highly prized. So if we look at the Welsh law codes, um, every fur has a value. And the very highest value, um, half a pound, <laughs> 120 pence, is applied to the beaver, um, beaver skin. Um, perhaps because it was uh, so beautiful and sleek, and it didn't even have a grain, so it could be it could be stroked either way, and it was waterproof. Um, but perhaps also because it was so big in comparison to other fur-bearing animals. If you think of how many little weasels you'd have to 
to kill to make a coat compared to how many beavers, I suppose it makes sense that the beaver skin is, is so much more popular. Um, so in terms of the extinction of the beaver, um, we're still sort of hashing it out um, between between the, the historians and the archaeologists. Um, I suppose I'm a bit of a conservative. So Gerald of Wales, who I spoke about earlier, he found this population of beavers in the River Tavy in the 12th century. And he said that this was the only population of beavers um, south of the River Humber in England and the only population in Wales. And so um, if we can believe him, then that was sort of the, the last the last ones in, in the south of Britain. Um, but in the 16th century, we have people like Hector Boyce talking about beavers in the River Ness and, in, and in, indeed in Loch Ness in Scotland. So beavers sen- seem to have, have lasted much longer there. Um, and sort of in between those times, we've got an archaeological record. Um, so I believe from the 14th century, um, there's evidence of, of beaver-chewed wood um, which have which has been found from um, from the north of Britain, um, I think in Northumbria, and so we have to sort of figure that into the story. So I suppose I like to think of it as a sort of sweeping extinction, with beavers lost first from maybe the south of England, lost second from from Wales in the twelfth century, um, lost third maybe from the very north of England in the sort of maybe the fourteenth century, and then lost from Scotland in the sixteenth century. But there are other records which, to me, seem less reliable um, from later later periods. So we're still, I suppose, discussing the, the extinction of the beaver. But yeah, it is a really a really fun one for, as a medieval source. And, and you talked about the, the, how their 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 furs were particularly valued. I'm just wondering. Uh, so, so obviously that would that would be a reason for why they might be uh, declining in numbers of people hunting them f- for that. But were they seen as a, a pest? Because obviously beavers are, are famous for cutting down trees and for creating dams and, and modifying landscapes. And that's uh, one of the reasons why people um, who who want to reintroduce beavers say that it's a good thing to bring them back because that that, that sort of activity could be um, uh, ecologically beneficial and good for drainage. So that's kind of the argument they make. But um, uh, on, the, on the flip side, if you're involved in agriculture, you might take a different view on that. Um, was that sort of conflict in play when beavers were alive and, and well in in Britain? No, funnily enough, I've never I've never seen any any record of that in medieval Britain. And it might just have been that if you had beavers on your land and you didn't like them, then you could just hunt them down and, and make a lovely fur suit out of them, and and everyone was happy. Um, but no, there's there's no no evidence of of that same um, human animal conflict in the medieval period, which is really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so they were hunted for their fur. Um, were there other reasons why you might want to catch a beaver? Uh, you you want me to tell the Castorium story? I think. Yes, David. please. <laughs> <laughs> so in the bestiary, there's a story which is that. If a beaver is being chased, um, if we imagine a, a, a load of people on horses, although why they want to be on horses, I'm not sure, chasing a beaver across a landscape, although why a beaver would be chasing across a landscape, I don't know, and not just diving into the water, um, the beaver will suddenly stop and it will look behind it and say, oh, I can't outrun these horses. What I'm going to do is I'm going to chew off my testicles and hurl my testicles at 
the uh, that the riders. Um, I hope I'm allowed to say this on your, on your podcast, David. <laughs> Um, why would they do that why would they do that well the medieval people had this idea that the beavers castorium um this is a uh, castorium is a sort of um, a substance which is uh, secreted by beavers from their anal glands and medieval people had this idea that it was actually contained in the beaver's testicles and that's why the beaver would throw its testicles at the incoming horses in order that um, they would stop chasing it and just say, oh, we've got what we came for, off we go. Um, and the story is is fun for, for lots of reasons, not just the fact that the beaver is acting like a hare and running across a field, um, and not just that it's chewing off its testicles, um, which are internal, by the way, on a beaver, so it would be very hard for it to chew off. Um, it, it's also fun because it's it might be something which didn't, which which people weren't actually as interested in as previously thought. Um, so my favourite source, Gerald of Wales. Gerald says that um, people are interested in beaver castorium in the east, um, and this is a typical Gerald of Wales way of saying that um, what we're talking about is not something which he believed in. He's exotifying it and saying, in the East, they're interested in Castorium. But we, of course, um, we we true Westerners, um, we're only interested in fursuits. Um, so it's possible that Castorium was, was, was more harvested from beaver populations elsewhere and that people in Britain were especially interested in fursuits. Or it's possible that Gerald of Wales didn't really know what he was talking about. Um, but either way, it does make a fun story. Um, right. Okay. So uh, that's that's brilliant. Our, our beavers, uh, as I said, I find absolutely fascinating. So it's really interesting to hear about them. Um, so we've talked about a few examples of animals there. Can we just do? Um, uh, I've sort of teed you up on this, so um, so you might have had a chance to think about it. But I want to do a bit of a quick fire on some other animals uh, uh, to find out when they went extinct. So I'm going to ask you to give us a sense about when you think they died out and what's the kind of the last known good evidence. So uh, let's go with cranes. Cranes are, are fun because as a breeding species, the last evidence of them breeding is from 1603 in Pembrokeshire. But as a migratory species, they quite often stopped off for the winter. And we, we do get um, records of large flocks of them until at least 1650 and perhaps until the end of the 17th century, when after which we only get records of occasional wanderers. But they do show up all the way through, um, even, even to the present day. And of course, now they've been reintroduced and have recolonize themselves into into norfolk okay wolves um wolves another fun one because people sort of tell tell tall tales of them all the way through the medieval period but um i'm thinking probably um we've got good evidence from the 14th century in england and maybe a bit later um there's there's uh some evidence of 17th century records from from scotland and maybe later again in ireland uh bears uh, now, bears, I think the best evidence is from the Neolithic and from the Bronze Age, so way before any of my historical sources. Um, but funnily enough, um, Hannah O'Regan, um, a scholar of, of the bear, has managed to find one one um, one piece of evidence from Kinsey Cave, um, actually the, the same cave where the, the last... Uh, remains of links have been found um and if true that would that would put it in the fifth or sixth century in the medieval period which is is fun to think of a, a bear wandering around back then wow that is a good one um what about the wild boar did that go extinct 
Now, the wild boar did go extinct, and it, I suppose it depends what you think of as the wild, because probably by the 13th century in England, there were no wild boars running around anymore in the common land. Um, but there's two two sort of caveats to that. First of all, um, on in royal forests, um, the, bear, the boar seems to have been uh, preserved when it could be. And when they did manage to hunt out all of them and, and kill them all, they would re-import them um, from Europe. So we have, I suppose, reintroductions of wild boars all the way through the medieval period. Um, and the, the, the other thing is that uh, before the great improvers of the um, of the the later sort of 18th and 19th century, um, wild boar would have been very similar to domestic pigs. And domestic pigs were put out every winter into um, the woods as a sort of, uh, as panage schemes. So they would be sent out to eat all the acorns and, 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 and not have to be fed through the winter. Um, and so, if you went out into the woods and saw a creature which was like a wild boar but actually wasn't wasn't really wild, does that count as a wild boar? So again, a difficult one. <laughs> um, okay, what about the the great orc? And actually, you better tell us what a great orc is. A great orc is a bird. It's a little bit like a penguin, or if you know what a, a, a goulamot is, it's, it's a lot like a goulamot, um, which I suppose was the little orc. Um, great orcs were found um, up until the 19th century, actually. Especially, They're especially known on St Kilda, which is west of the Western Isles of Scotland. Um, and they were very popular because you could just, uh, you could find them swimming in the sea and just put in a net and gather them up. Um, and they were, they were huge and they apparently were delicious. So people, people did that quite often. Um, and they went globally extinct soon afterwards. Um, so they were lost in the 19th century. Okay, uh, uh, for completion, should we just do uh, the links? When when did the links uh, go extinct? According to my to my most recent record, I think now um, probably they were around in 1760 um, in Orkenken in Dumfries and Galloway, but they were already being heavily persecuted by then. So probably not not long afterwards, they would have gone extinct from there as well. And the beaver, twelfth um, century in the south of Britain and probably earlier than that in England. Um, 14th century in the, the the north of England and probably 16th century in, in Scotland for me, although there are dissenting voices on that subject. Um, thank you. So that's, uh, I, I love the quick follow around. Thank you very much for that, Lee. That's, uh, that's covered some, some other interesting animals, but just sort of uh, moving to a conclusion, I suppose, um, some of these animals were extinct or were going extinct during the medieval period, so they may have been very rare, rarely sighted. I just wonder how far they linger in popular imagination, do you think, as animals that were once here? Yeah, this is an interesting one because it, it tends to just depend on the species. So people all the way through the medieval period, even after the 14th century when um, the wolf went extinct in in England, um, they knew that the wolf had once been found there, um, and even into the early modern period, they knew that it would it was it had once been found there, but that it was gone. They they kind of knew about extinction, which is exciting when we think about. Um, some people say that extinction was invented by Cuvier um, so around seventeen hundred. Um, 
But that doesn't seem to be the case. People understand that these animals are missing. But there's other animals which go extinct and then they are kind of forgotten. A good example is the crane. And the crane was so popular in medieval texts, you'd never have thought that it would be forgotten. It was um, this really high-class bird which uh, which the elite hunters loved to hunt and which they had to use the the very best falcons, the jair falcons and the, the peregrine falcons if they wanted to go falconing for it. Um, but when it went extinct, it was very quickly forgotten to the extent that when ordinary people thought, well, we know that there's a species called the crane, which is found around here, but when they went looking for it, they couldn't find it. So that they seem to have moved the name of the species onto another species. Um, so if you if you go out today and you see a heron, you might hear some people calling it a crane. And I think that upsets some ornithologists. They say, that's not a crane, that's a, that's a grey heron. Um, but actually, they've been taught that name for, for years, and it seems to be that they their people are calling or were calling the heron the crane just because they knew that there was an animal which was a bit like that. Um, and so they recycled the name. Um, so even the name was lost of the crane, whereas the wolf was always remembered. Um, okay, so just a, a couple more questions. Um, one of the things that obviously concerns us a lot today in terms of uh, animals and possible extinctions is, is the need to protect and conserve. Was there was there any sense in the Middle Ages uh, of that same sort of sentiment that animals should be conserved and protected? Yeah, so I spoke earlier about the the um, the acts which meant that um, cranes shouldn't be disturbed anymore and great bustards should be should be left alone. I think um, on top of that, there's of course. Uh, in the in the Welsh law codes, animals like the the beaver, the eagle, um, were was were were protected to the extent that anyone who killed them was supposed to give the the landowner the value of them, or 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 uh, could get in trouble. Um, so that sort of got rid of any financial incentive to hunt those animals. Um, but what I really like is that some animals were protected without actually there being any legal. Um, any any legislation in place at all. So in late medieval and early modern London, um, red kites and ravens um, were very common on the streets, and they would cause so much mischief. They would um, they would pluck the hats off off men's heads. They would steal clothes off the washing line. Apparently, they would they would steal fish and and, and bread from children's hands on the streets, um, like 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 today's herring girls, I suppose. And swooping across London. Um, but at the same time, even though people didn't like them, they weren't persecuted. And we find in, in the sources that people people say that even though they are mischievous and, and even though we don't like them, we're not going to hunt them because uh, they protect London from bad air and they uh, consume all the carrion. Um, they stop sort of food being left to rot in the streets by by cleaning it up. And people were terrified of miasma, this bad air which could cause diseases. And so ravens and red kites seem to have been left alone. Um, Travellers to, to London thought that there must have been a huge, uh, a huge penalty for killing ravens and red kites. They thought maybe there was a death sentence if you killed a raven. Um, but actually, I went looking for the law and I can't find any law. I think people just left these ravens and red kites alone just because everyone agreed that they were quite useful to have. They provided ecosystem services, as we would say today. Okay, last one then. Um, uh, we've talked about um, people 
talking about the reintroduction of the beaver and, and the fact that that's actually it, it going on in some places. Um, some people talk about reintroducing lynxes. Some people talk about reintroducing wolves. Um, does, does, does the medieval evidence uh, that you've seen help us uh, to sort of think about uh, that process and think about best practice in, in how uh, reintroduction could be carried out and if it's appropriate? I suppose one way to think about it is that in the medieval period, um, there was perhaps a little bit more respect um, for the environment. So in the earliest uh, medieval English laws and in the in the literature of the period, sometimes people talk about calling as they go through woodlands as being a common thing which which everyone was expected to do. And I suppose this was both so that you didn't sneak up on anyone and 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 act like you were about to rob them, but also to scare away large animals. And I know that people sort of hiking in in North America and especially Canada sometimes carry bear bells today. So maybe um, learning to live with with animals, if, if we do end up reintroducing any which um, sometimes impact on humans, there might be a few a few lessons to learn from from those sources and from areas where the animals are still found today. Um, but there was also just a sense of practicality um, so that when there were red kites on the streets of London, they sometimes went after chicks, um, if not, not full-grown chickens, um, but, but tiny chicks if they were left alone and ducklings. Um, and people would go out there <laughs> and fr- throw sticks at them and shout at them until they went away. And I think there's a sense of practicality there of, you know, if, there are things which people used to do just to live alongside animals, which which I think we would all pick up as just common sense today. Um, so, yeah, I think perhaps sometimes we get too scared of, of these animals and think there's no possible way we could learn to live with them. But but sometimes uh, all that we all that we need is to to shout at a, a red kite and make it, make it leave. That was Dr. Lee Ray. Lee's most recent project is the Atlas of Early Modern Wildlife, which is an attempt to map the wildlife of Britain and Ireland from 1500 to 1750. You can find out more by using the hashtag Atlas of Early Modern Wildlife. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.